study God's Word together. It is a joy to be back with you. Carol and I always enjoy our time when we come to share the Word of God with you. We will be back on Saturday the 9th of January for a memorial service for Dr. Bob Carpenter right here in this room. If you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, I would like to have us look this morning particularly at the passage on the incarnation of Christ. When I think of Christmas, uh, I think of God's gift of His Son to be our Savior, and yet uh, the theology of Christmas is about God becoming a man. If you think of the need to save us, uh, you can easily see that God couldn't uh, just set aside our sins and say, never mind, we'll just not count them against you. Uh, His holiness would demand payment for our sins. The penalty must be paid. And his son, who became Jesus Christ, was willing to pay that penalty. Uh, But as he was sent to join us as a member of our human race, it is somewhat surprising to us that he came as a baby, that he was born of Mary. Uh, When we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, about a child will be given to us, a son born to us. It's a surprise in a sense that the gift of God with us comes first as a helpless baby boy. Now, I think part of the reason as to why God did this is so that we would truly believe that he's genuinely human. And an incarnation has taken place. Incarnation means Uh, a a becoming flesh, a becoming a real human being. It removes doubt from us that he really has identified with us. Uh, He had Mary's eyes. He had Mary's nose. He was genetically related to us through Mary, but not through Joseph, because the Holy Spirit, in a miraculous way, had come upon Mary and overshadowed Mary and allowed through the miracle of God to have her conceive in her womb uh, this holy child born Jesus Christ. And Paul, in his interest in helping the Philippians uh, grow even more deeply in their faith and their relationship uh, with God, brought up this subject of the Incarnation. And in Philippians chapter 2, we find the best description possible anywhere in the Scripture as to what it was like for Jesus to become one of us and how it is that he could be God and man at the same time. But he doesn't bring the theology up in isolation just as a curiosity. He brings up the theology because it applies so well to the Philippians' problem. The Philippian church was a very healthy church. In fact, I would think if I were to rate Paul's treatment of them, it must have been his favorite church. And yet, no church is perfect. And the Philippian church did have some level of disunity among it. And it caused the need for them to grow. Uh, So when he wrote to them and 
was giving them exhortations as to how uh, they could cooperate well with each other, he brought up the incarnation as a theology, the implication of which, if properly applied to us, would help solve their problems of selfishness and self-interest and a desire uh, to make sure that we get what we want. Many of us, if you think back on uh, Christmas morning, uh, may have realized that there was a little bit of chaos going on on Christmas morning, especially if you have children or grandchildren, especially young ones, in which there's uh, almost a rabid fervor uh, to get to those presents and to claim them as your own. And I am uh, going to be honest with you, uh, even as wonderful as our five kids were, uh, there were times in which uh, there were squabbles among them uh, as to did I get the right gift or was the gift that should have been mine given to one of the brothers or sisters. And especially we discovered if we gave video games uh, to the kids that as they tried to play video games together, they would fight among themselves and we'd realize that the entire purpose of having given them that gift has been ruined by the human selfishness that comes out when we try to dominate a sibling. Look with me then as I read uh, certain key verses out of uh, Philippians, and I will start with the key verse in the entire epistle. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 2. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So you'll notice his exhortation is regarding the need for unity, having a singular spirit and a singular mind, and working together to see the gospel spread. Now jump to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, of course, you would have to say to yourself, there is. Christ does console us. And in fact, even the way in which this is expressed in the grammar, you would obviously say yes to each of these. If there's any comfort of love, does God's love comfort us? Yes, it does. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, do we enjoy fellowshipping with the Spirit? Does that give us uh, a unity among us in which we fellowship with the same spirit? Yes, it does. If any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I think you can see by the way in which he's piled on synonymous phrases that you realize this is a concern for him regarding the Philippian church. And again, I say it's a healthy church. It's what we would call a happy church, but it doesn't mean it's perfect and it needs to grow in this way. And so he says, uh, my joy in you is good, but please bring it to completion so that I can see that you're of one accord, one mind, the same love. And then he says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's an interesting uh, way in which to nail it down to a specific issue within us, is that 
we all have a sense of wanting to do well, and we all have a sense of wanting things our own way, and we have this sense of ambition, this conceitedness in which we think our way is the best. I can remember going to a dinner party. You probably were at a dinner party just this last week with a, a large table spread and, and many guests at the table in which we were about to sit down. There were even place cards at the table as to where we were to sit down, but there was a two-year-old who noticed where we were beginning to sit and decided that's not how she wanted it, and she threw a tantrum telling us, no, you can't sit there, you need to sit over here. And her mother actually acquiesced to her and told us as adults, in order to calm her down, just sit where she tells you. And Carol and I were astounded at the thought of the two-year-old controlling the adults as to where they would sit. But without the Holy Spirit in our lives, I think each one of us would likely be as selfish as that to continuously demand what we want and force other people to do it our way. He goes on to say in verse 3, But in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Now, part of the problem of our Christianity is that we are Americans, and Canadian as well, uh, but uh, we generally are taught to have personal pride, national pride, pride in whatever it is that we like about ourselves and our situation, and to view ourselves as superior, as unique almost. And yet he says, no, the secret of aligning yourself with what Christ has taught us is actually to consider the other person's interests above your own and to value them more important than yourselves. Carol and I have had the opportunity to counsel a number of uh, young Christian couples desiring to be married, and we've actually officiated at many of their weddings. And it's universal among all of us uh, as to how they start to blend together, and they begin to talk about their own personal preferences and their own family traditions, uh, that they find conflict, and they have to somehow adjust to each other and decide, well, how will we do it as a new couple? And we teach them from the Scripture that the Scripture has an answer for our own personal selfishness in marriage, and the answer is that the husband is to love his wife self-sacrificially, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so the husband is actually to prioritize loving his wife and meeting her needs, just as Christ did the church. And then she is told to honor, respect, and obey her husband following his leadership, which wouldn't be tough if he were loving herself sacrificially. What would be really tough, though, is if the husband is selfish and then the wife is selfish, and then they both insist on their own ways, and unfortunately, uh, we're involved in counseling people like that, uh, even to this day, uh, where they both are holding their ground and refusing to forgive the other for what uh, hurts uh, one has caused the other. It's an insurmountable problem if we do not learn from Jesus Christ that if we have been forgiven, uh, we must be willing to forgive others. 
And verse 4 says, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Then he comes to the application of the incarnation, which drew me to this passage because of the Christmas story and because of the New Year's resolutions that many of us will be making this year uh, as we head into New Year's Day, uh, not just uh, to exercise more and to eat less, but to actually uh, grow spiritually. And I think this might be a great passage for us to meditate on as we are making uh, choices as to how this new year would be different. Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, in other words, have the same mindset that he had, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then drop down to verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I drop down to verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Drop down now to chapter 4. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syndike to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There are some women's names that... Uh, I've heard today uh, that uh, parents have named their kids where I say, you know, what were you thinking? Uh, I, I know uh, Delilah, for example, and I, I think like nice biblical name, but of the wrong side of the Bible. Why would you name your daughter Delilah? That She doesn't really have the best reputation. It's like naming your daughter Jezebel or something. But I don't know anybody who's named a daughter Yodia or Syndicate. Because I don't think anybody wants to be remembered as one of these pillars of the New Testament church who couldn't get along with each other well inside of the church and were named in a publicly read letter. Can you imagine this? We as the church have received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Let's gather tonight and read it together. We read it. Yodi and Syntyche are there in the audience as they hear their names called out and the whole rest of the church exhorted to help these women get along with each other. Horrors to be named in such a way. And yet not one of us could say that we have not had a selfish streak within ourselves that sometimes raises its ugly head. And I have children who have long memories. Occasionally when my children are getting together, they, 
uh, like to make fun of dad as they're laughing about uh, memories of their childhood, and they can think of funny things that, that dad has said from time to time, and they've, they've memorized these. Only seal them in their minds uh, with uh, stronger memories. There was one particular evening uh, when my kids were young, uh, all of them were at home, in which Carol called me and said it had been a long day, I think she cleaned house that day, and she said, can you just pick up pizza on the way home for dinner? That's an easy thing to do, so I stopped by, picked up a couple of pizzas, uh, brought them in the house, put them in the center of the table. I had had a long, hard day myself, and I was kind of worn out and stressed a bit, <clears throat> and as uh, we had had the prayer, and as the kids were beginning to reach to the center of the table to pull their own pieces of pizza out, I sat at the end of the table and took none for myself. And so Carol noticed something was wrong and, and uh, said something like, you, you know, aren't you going to have some pizza? And I said words that I regret saying that my kids now recite when they laugh about me. I said, and it's unbelievable I said this, I said, I'm tired. I'm hungry, and I want to be served. <laughs> and so she reached across the table and pulled out a slice of pizza for me and put it on my plate, and I ate my pizza along with all the rest of us. <clears throat> but occasionally, feelings like that come to the surface in which we assert ourselves with our own selfishness, and we say, serve me. I'm first. Think of me. And what Paul says regarding the Philippian problem is he's saying it's not going to work for the unity of the church if each one of us says, serve me. If each one of us says, my idea is best. If each one of us says, do it my way. If each one of us insists that our preferences are most important. I don't think the problem between Yodi and Syntyche are actually a theological problem because Paul mentions no theological issue. He was very quick in the Galatian letter to solve theological problems. Every comment that he makes regarding this situation is only at the issue of preference and of selfishness and of a desire to have one's own mind and not the mind of Christ. I think, therefore, that the solution really is exactly what he said at the very beginning in the key verse, 127, in which he said, let's come together with one mind and one spirit and strive in unison for the spread of the gospel. Let's rally around what none of us could possibly say is not important, let's see the gospel spread. And if God has been so kind to you as to console you and to love you and to bless you, have the same mind which was in Christ Jesus when he became incarnate. And I'd like us to look at that theology because the theology is astounding in its helpfulness to cause us to say, if he was willing to do that for us, who am I to not be willing to humble myself as well? Turn back then to chapter 2 
and listen to the apostle make application on the basis of the theology of the incarnation, in which he teaches us uh, to find unity through humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, in other words, this is what we're to take from it, is to develop a different attitude than what is natural to us. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The term form of God is a very powerful term. The term is morphe. Morphe means that what you see is what you get. The real thing is right there in front of you. And he emphasizes that when the second person of the Trinity was in heaven, he was recognized by all the angelic creatures as a member of the Trinity of God himself and was worshiped and honored and glorified as God himself. His essential being was clearly manifested, clearly seen. And the implication is, is that as he becomes one of us, he carries with him the morphe of God, the form of God that he has within himself, this same majesty of deity. However, he'll say, it's veiled. He says he did not regard this equality with God, this recognition of his right to be observed and worshipped as God himself, a thing to be grasped. That that term is, is a very interesting one in which it's something that we prize so much that we hold on to, we cling to it, and we will not let it go. I've watched my kids hang on to one end of a toy in which the other kid is hanging on to another end of the toy, and they're both pulling, claiming it for their own. I've watched one of my children gather the toys to himself and pull them off by themselves as if to indicate these are my toys. They're not your toys. I will play with my toys. You can't play with them. And we say, well, some of these toys we thought we would enjoy as a family and not just have them belong to you alone. We would hope you would share your toys. And yet, many people don't want to share. Jesus didn't cling to his right to be worshipped by the angels as something so important to him that he was not willing to leave heaven and come to us. He let go, in a sense, of his glory as this rich prize to be claimed. And he willingly divested himself of the outward appearance of deity. So that when human beings saw the baby Jesus, the boy Jesus, the man Jesus, they saw a man. And they didn't immediately see 
God himself through this human being. In fact, he was so humble that many of the religious leaders couldn't understand how he could possibly be the promised Messiah or the Savior, who they thought would be a conquering Lord, and did not imagine him to be so humble. And though he was of the same nature of God, he didn't exploit that for his own advantage and live as a God and a king here on earth, but humbled himself to live life as a man with all the weaknesses and humbleness of one of us. He grew tired. He grew hungry. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, He knew what it was like to live life as a man. In verse 7, it says, using the Greek word kanao, which means to empty, it says, he emptied himself. It's a very strong concept to say, and the King James probably translate this in a way that expresses it most accurately to us. He made himself of no reputation, meaning that to meet him, you wouldn't have immediately guessed that he was God in the flesh because he stripped himself of any insignia of majesty. There was nothing when you gazed upon him that you'd immediately say, this is God in the flesh. He didn't glow. He didn't have a a halo on his head. He didn't wear a lapel pin that said member of the United States Senate or anything like that. There was nothing that caused you to immediately say, this is God come in the flesh. One of the better ways to think of it is he retained his glory. But he veiled it and held it back so that you would relate to him as a real human being. And though he continued in his deity to possess all of his divine attributes, he didn't use any of these attributes for his own advantage, but gave up the glories and prerogatives of his deity and submitted himself to a hard life, a life that would cause us to recognize that he knew what it was like to be human, even to suffer temptations, uh, even to be able to know what it would be like to be a fit high priest for us. He took the form then of a bondservant. It's the same powerful word, morphe, that we saw earlier in which He has the morphe of God, the form of God, which means he takes the form of a bondservant, not just a man, but a humble man, a bondservant kind of a man, meaning that he is genuinely human. Some people mistake this incarnation to think that he's God just covered with the look of a human, and that's not true. He is very clearly both 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He took on real humanity as a real human being, yet without sin. In other words, like Adam was before Adam had sinned, without any sin nature at all. He was now truly man and remained completely God and was viewed very clearly as a humble servant. It then says, and being made in the likeness of men, this is a different term. 
likeness is speaking of resemblance in which it doesn't necessarily conform to reality. And what he means by this, being made in the likeness of men, is that he does have some level of difference with us. In Romans 8.3, it speaks of the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning not exactly the same, but similar. Or in Hebrews 4.15, it teaches us that he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. So truly human being, but not a sinful human being. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Sometimes we get the wrong impression that his deity so overwhelmed his humanity that he did not have to learn. But the scripture speaks specifically that as a human being, he grew and learned and grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man, Luke tells us. He even learned obedience by obeying his heavenly father and all of his commands. He actually obeyed the law and fulfilled the law. Some thought that he had obeyed the law imperfectly, and particularly such things as violating the Sabbath, but he corrected their misunderstanding and misapplication of the law of the Sabbath and told them that what he was doing was actually what God intended the Sabbath to represent. Now, we read in Hebrews chapter 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Or in Romans 5, we read, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And in this incarnation, we realize that his humility extended even to the point of his death and even to the worst kind of death, death on a cross. It can't get harder than that. You remember, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying to the Father, that there was a wrestling within himself, because he has a human nature and a divine nature, there was a part of him in the human nature that wished that there could be some other way to achieve our salvation. And that in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he aligned his human will with God's will for him and said, not my will, but thine be done, and willingly went to the cross for us. The veiling of his deity and his desire to show his glory is demonstrated in the transfiguration in which he called the inner circle of the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go off to the side with him. And he was transfigured before them in a sense in which his glory shone through his humanity and they were able to see him as he really was, see him for who he was, God come in the flesh. This theology of the incarnation is well worth our meditation. 
and our deep thinking to understand why was Jesus willing to do this for us and why was this the Father's plan for us? In the Christmas story, I think through that story and I say, why did you have to make it so hard on Mary? How embarrassing it must have been for her to be unmarried and pregnant. But it was crucial for us to understand that this miraculous conception within her was not from Joseph, but from God, so that we realize this is God in her womb come to be one of us. The embarrassment for Mary is a clarification for us that he's not merely human. He's both God and man in this same person, so that this child will be a holy child. He will be a savior to us. He will be Christ the Lord. I think also of poor Joseph with his betrothed turning up pregnant and saying, I don't want her humiliated in public. I don't want her stoned to death. I'll put her away privately until the angel appears to him in a dream and says, no, Joseph, you've completely misunderstood. This is from God, and this is a holy child within her. Even the need to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem in her third trimester, I can't imagine how hard that journey must have been. And to get to the city of David, their ancestral home, and to have no place to stay. I can just see what that would have been like in our family. If I was trying to tell my wife, honey, there is no place. Let's go camp out with the animals. It just not, would not have gone well. And I think, like, why did God treat Joseph and Mary so harshly? And the answer is to teach us how harshly his son would be treated. Who would witness the birth of Jesus? Was it King Herod? Was it all the religious leaders? King Herod didn't care, except perhaps that there might be a usurper to the throne. No, he picked angels to go to shepherds, people who couldn't testify in court, people who had poor reputations as thieves, he picked shepherds to go and witness the birth of the child. The religious elite didn't go. He picked Gentiles from the east to bring him gifts and to recognize his birth. None of these things are by accident. All of this part of the story is to teach us how hard it was for Jesus Christ to become incarnate and to teach us how greatly he was willing to humble himself and then to ask us to allow our minds to be formed following Christ. That we would have the same mind of Christ, the same attitude that he had, so that we would be able to humble ourselves and put the other's interests above their own. What was it that the Philippians were doing? It was so bad, the same thing the ancestors of Israel did in the wilderness wanderings. They grumbled and complained, according to verse 14. When Paul says, I don't know if I'll be released in time, I'm writing for prison. I may not be able to come to you. In the meantime, I'll send to you Timothy. And when he introduces Timothy to them 
in the next paragraph, beginning with verse 19. He says, among my entire team of elite pioneer evangelists that travel with me, there's only one of my guys I could send to you because all of them are too selfish to actually minister to their needs. It's such a shocking admission that let me read it to you in his own words. He says in verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. As a college professor, I had many uh, students. Can you imagine if I gave only one student an A and gave everybody else C's? Do you know what kind of uproar there would have been and what kind of level of favoritism they would have accused me of? But for Paul to say, with my elite team, there's not a single one I can send you because they're still too personally selfish and self-interested. Only Timothy will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. You know his proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Many young people demand that they take control and leadership when they're still amazingly young and inconsistent. Peter writes that way to the elders when he says, now when you shepherd the flock, don't lord it over them like the Gentiles do, but prove to be examples to the flock. And he says, you young men, be patient. God will exalt you in your proper time. And it's interesting that this story tells us that probably if you were my class of students, we would have to say that most of us are too selfish, too concerned about our own personal interests to be of much use. And that we need to genuinely be concerned for other people's welfare and how to minister to them. I travel and I meet people all the time. And it's incumbent on me to continuously say to myself, Stop looking out for your own interests. Be genuinely interested in other people and learn to find out their needs and how you can minister to them. When people take a genuine interest in me and find out how they can help me, I find tremendous encouragement in that. One of my students noticed that as I came to class with various different shoes, depending on what outfit I was wearing, that my shoes all could use a shoe shine. In Iowa, walking uh, through the snow in the wintertime, uh, your shoes get, take a beating. And he kept noticing my shoes and decided, that poor guy is not shining his shoes. Why, every pair seems to be in disarray. And he came to me and humbly said, would you mind letting me shine your shoes? Can you bring me you know, four different pairs of shoes and, and let me shine them. And I thought like, wow, sure, <laughs> that'd be really helpful. That's a pain. And he did it just because he saw a need and met it. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we read this beautiful, beautiful exhortation from the Apostle Paul, he teaches us 
that we need to gather together as a body of believers with the mind of Christ. Because we're filled with the same Spirit, we serve the same Lord, and He's asked us to set aside our own selfishness and with unity of mind work together to spread the gospel. May that be our New Year's resolution this year. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I ask that you would help us to humble ourselves as we see your Son humbling himself. And we ask you that you'd help us to see clearly through the ministry of the Spirit within us ways in which we need to submit ourselves to you and let you deal with us and produce in us the attitude of Christ Jesus. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.